God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. We're in uh, Daniel chapter 3 this morning, uh, and we're going to be tracing our way through, really, chapter 3 of Daniel. So if you brought with you a physical Bible, uh, or if you prefer to, to follow along with a Bible app on your phone, uh, feel free to pull those things out now. Uh, we're in Daniel uh, chapter 3, but in our reading today, we didn't hear anything about Daniel. Instead, it was his three friends who took center stage, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are their Babylonian names, anyway. Remember that uh, these three kids were, were taken from their homeland, Jerusalem, and brought, exiled out to the land of Babylon, this metropolis. And, and now King Nebuchadnezzar, he wants to, to change these three kids, and Daniel and the others he brought with them. He wants to train them up in the ways of Babylon so that he can resend them back to Israel and make good citizens, good Babylonian citizens of all those back in the homeland. And so King Nebuchadnezzar has trained them for a few years. He has renamed them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the pressure to conform to that Babylonian society for these three boys, it must have been great. I mean, think about it. These kids are now in the largest city in the world during their time. It's the most technologically advanced society. It's the most powerful. And these displays of power are all around them. Upon entering the city, these three boys in Daniel, uh, they would have gone through a gate like this. This is the Ishtar Gate. It was excavated from Babylon in the 1930s and put together at the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. It's 50 feet high and decorated with animals and uh, deities, a testament to both Babylon's architectural brilliance and also to their pluralistic society. Pluralistic, that means that in Babylon, they worshipped many, many gods. In fact, in the inscription on the Ishtar Gate, there are words penned there from King Nebuchadnezzar, the same guy that we heard about in Scripture this morning, where he actually uh, praises about half a dozen pagan gods for Babylon's supremacy. You can Wikipedia the Ishtar Gate if you want to read those words for yourself. I encourage you to do that. Once the boys were inside the city, they would have seen even more idolatry. Babylon had over a thousand temples, all devoted to various gods, pagan gods that promised their followers power, prestige, popularity. The temptation to conform would have been great indeed. But now there was more than just a subtle pressure to conform. In verse 1 of Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar is demanding that all people bow down to this golden 
image, this statue that he has erected. And this image was impressive and imposing. It stood at 90 feet high and was 9 feet wide. And when the music played, if you could see this statue, no matter where you were in Babylon, you were to stop what you were doing, get on your knees, and bow down to the image. Or else you would pay. (laughs) And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. That was the command of the king. And so, as you would expect, when the music played, the people bowed down and they worshiped that golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the music still plays today. In free societies, free countries like the United States, we like to think that there's no ruler who's, who's pressuring us to worship any false idols, any false gods. And in America, we're not persecuted like Christians are in Sudan or in China. But nevertheless, you live in one of the greatest pluralistic societies in history, too. You live in America, where idolatry permeates our society. There's no 90-foot statue that we have to bow down to, no. Our gods are a little more subtle than that. But don't be fooled. The music still plays in America today, and people still bow down. The music plays as advertisements pan across our TV screens and tell you of the latest thing that you have to own if you want to be worthy or valuable. The music plays as the salvation for the soul of America is placed into the hands of a presidential candidate instead of into the hands of God. The music plays when we speak and act one way in church and with our church friends, but then keep our faith private when we go out into the world. That's the pressure that anyone faces when they live in a pluralistic society. It's not that you can't worship in your own space and and at your own time. It's that you better not speak up about it when you go out in public. It's fine for you, but don't you dare bring it into the classroom or the workplace. Don't bring it up at the next large family gathering. You see, Nebuchadnezzar didn't tell the three boys that they couldn't worship Yahweh, their God. He didn't say that. He simply said, you must bow down to these gods as well. But that's not what they do. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to fall down and worship anything other than Yahweh, the God of gods and the Lord of kings. And word gets around. In uh, verse 8 of chapter 3, we hear that certain Chaldeans, that is the people of Babylon, 
they came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. The language there is, is violent. In, in Hebrew, it literally says that the Chaldeans devoured pieces of them. And things are only beginning to heat up. Now, before long, uh, they're standing before the king himself. And that's where our reading began this morning. King Nebuchadnezzar gives the boys one more chance to bow down and worship the image he has set up or else be cast into the fiery furnace. And in verse 15, he even taunts them. He says, And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? In other words, it's fine for you to talk about this God of yours and to tell all those old stories of how he rescued you from bondage in Egypt, but this is the real world now. And I'm the one that calls the shots here, so you better get with the program. Your so-called God is nothing. These boys, they stand up in conviction of their faith, and they face flack for it. And don't be surprised if you face suffering in your life too, even if you follow God, especially if you follow God. Jesus himself said to expect it. In John 15, he said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Peter said it in our first reading today from our epistle. He said, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening. And yet, isn't that so often how we act? We we recoil at suffering. We, we try to get away from it. At least I do. <laughs> I don't like to suffer. And yet God uses suffering, not only for His glory, but for our good. Peter writes earlier in his letter, in chapter 1, he says, these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Suffering has come to refine you like gold. What happens when, when gold meets fire? It gets more precious more valuable. It becomes more beautiful. So what does that mean for us when it comes to our sufferings? God uses suffering to fashion our character. Do you want to know your own heart? Do you want to become a more compassionate person? Do you want to have a, a profound faith in God and godly wisdom? See, none of those things are achievable without suffering. Suffering has the potential to, to grow us, to, to make us stronger, and you might even think back on your own life and remember a time, a season of, of suffering that actually led to some of your greatest growth. Maybe you've had that experience 
God used your suffering to refine you. But growth doesn't automatically happen just because we suffer. And you can probably also think of of people who have just been broken by suffering. So how how do we grow in the face of our suffering instead of just being destroyed by it? For that, let's, let's come back to Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are standing before the king. Uh, they've been given one last chance to bow down, and now in verse 16, they say, O Nebuchadnezzar, <laughs> O Neb, <laughs> we have no need to answer you in this matter. Look at their confidence in the face of the king and of their impending doom. They go on to say in the next verse, verse 17, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, he is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is profound faith. These boys have already won the showdown because there is nothing that the king can do to get them to renounce their God. And that means there is nothing he can do to destroy them. Not ultimately. Look at their words again. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. See, these boys know that Yahweh stands far above any king, including Nebuchadnezzar. They know whose hands the world is in, and they know whose hands their own lives are in. They know that God can rescue them. But even more than this, they believe that He will. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us, and He will deliver us. These boys know what kind of God they serve. He is near. He loves His people. He desires life for all those who follow Him. These three know the character of their God, and so they know the trust that they have in Him. It is valid. But here's the kicker. We believe that He will deliver us, but if not... Even if God doesn't rescue us, we will not serve your gods. Now, at this point, it's almost a little foolish, right? I mean, who wants to follow a God who won't save them when it matters the most, right? When it's a life or death situation. But you see, this is where the boys reveal their deepest held beliefs about the God that they follow that this God can always rescue you from death, but He will always rescue you through death. Let me say that again. God can always rescue you from death, but He will always rescue you through death. You're invincible. 
And at this point, these three boys are invincible because they know that even if they die, they will live again. And so the story plays out. Nebuchadnezzar heats up the furnace. They, they bind the boys and carry them up to throw them in. As they're tossing them in, uh, the men who are throwing them in die because the furnace is so hot. And so it seems like there's no chance that these three boys will survive. But then the king rises. Verse 24, he's astonished and he arises in haste and he says, Do we not cast three men bound into the fire? But I see four men unbound, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Who is this mysterious fourth figure? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, he actually says more than he probably realizes. Because not only does he say that this one looks like a son of the gods, and that word that he uses for gods there is Elohim. That's the same word that Israel uses to talk about the one true God. So not only does Nebuchadnezzar say that he looks like a son of Elohim, but then again in verse 28, he says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel. The angel of the Lord. Not just another messenger angel. This isn't, this isn't Gabriel. This is the angel of the Lord. It's the one who pops up again and again in the Old Testament, who speaks and acts as if he were God himself. It's God in a visible form. It's a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ himself. That is who is in the fire with these three boys. It is Jesus. And so Nebuchadnezzar rightly responds, there is no other God who is able to save in this way. This is the character of God that the boys knew. This uniqueness of their God that, that none can save or rescue in his way. This is the secret. You want to know how to be able to, to go through suffering and grow in it instead of being destroyed? Know who your God is. Know what He is capable of and know what He has done for you. Because this wasn't the last time that Jesus stood in a fire. Jesus stood in another fire for you. Jesus faced a furnace vastly more terrible than King Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. He stood in the furnace of God's wrath for you. Do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? When Jesus was praying praying to the Father that he might take that cup away, the cup of his wrath. And as Jesus was praying, what was he doing? He was sweating. He is sweating because he can feel what's coming. 
He knows what the furnace of God's wrath is. It is separation from God. It is agony. And it's a separation that we deserved. We haven't loved our Lord with all our hearts and mind and strength. We haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. And we have bowed down to the idols more times than Peter denied his Lord. We deserve to be cast away from God forever. And since we were built, we were built for God's presence to be apart from Him. That is agony. But Jesus faced that ultimate furnace in our place. Because Jesus was thrown into that ultimate furnace, we are saved. He took the heat for you and for me. And knowing that Jesus has faced that ultimate furnace in our place and that he, he walks with us in the midst of our sufferings, we can face any trial. We can face any trial. If he, if he endured that steadfastly for me, then whatever it is that I'm going through right now, whatever suffering I'm facing, I can endure that for him. Jesus suffered, not that I might not suffer, but so that in my sufferings I might be made more like him. If you know this Jesus, if you know that he took your place and that he stands with you today, you will be able to stand and withstand any of the smaller, cooler furnaces that we face, and they will turn you to gold. May we walk in the midst of our trials, holding fast to Jesus, who can save like no other God and who walks with us. It's in his name. Amen.